Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. listeners and welcome to Behind the Knife's Pediatric Surgery Case Presentation Podcast. Today we will discuss the workup and management of a patient with neuroblastoma and break down the specific management in various scenarios. This is Amanda Jensen from Riley Children's in Indianapolis. I am the current Pediatric Surgery Junior Fellow. Today I have with me Dr. Brian Gray. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Gray. I'm the Pediatric Surgery Fellowship Program Director here at Riley Hospital for Children at Indiana University. We want to make sure you have an excellent toolbox for the management of neuroblastoma. And Manish Shabadia, who is one of our general surgery residents at Indiana University. Hey guys, I'm Manisha. I'm one of the IU general surgery residents and current global surgery fellow living in Elder at Kenya. Whether you're a medical student, resident, pediatric surgery fellow, or attending, we want you to have access to some of the most relevant neuroblastoma articles in pediatric surgery. With this case-based presentation, we'll break down the management of neuroblastoma into an easy format to help you prepare for written or oral boards. All right, Manisha, why don't you start us off with a little intro to neuroblastoma? To start off, let's go over some basic facts. Neuroblastoma accounts for about 7% of pediatric malignancies and 15% of pediatric cancer deaths. It's the most common neoplasm in infants. In the United States, there are about 650 newly diagnosed cases per year. 65% occur in the abdomen, and only 40% are in a single location at presentation. Dr. Gray, why specifically did we choose to break down the management of neuroblastoma? Well, Manisha, neuroblastoma has interesting clinical and biologic diversity. In the neonate, we can see spontaneous regression of their tumor without resection. Similarly, some metastatic disease can also have spontaneous regression. It's very treatable in those kids less than 18 months of age with no metastatic disease and good tumor biology. However, in the high-risk older toddlers and children, this disease can be very difficult to cure. Additionally, management of neuroblastoma varies greatly depending on the risk group of the individual patient. Due to this wide variability in both management and outcomes, I thought it would be beneficial to dive into the nuances. The goal for this first patient discussion is to guide you through the workup of an infant with a prenatally diagnosed neuroblastoma. Attached to the podcast is an article by Dr. Jed Nocturne and colleagues called A Perspective Study of Expectant Observation as Primary Therapy for Neuroblastoma in Young Infants, a children's oncology group study that will be useful reference throughout the discussion of this first case. Okay, let's start off with a 27-year-old woman who is 26 weeks pregnant. She's referred to our clinic due to a prenatal ultrasound binding of an abdominal mass. Amanda, how would you counsel her? So at this time, I would get an ultrasound to further characterize the abdominal mass. I'd assess if it was solid versus cystic, if I can tell the organ of origin and the location in the abdomen. I'd also want to assess for high drops or any other congenital anomalies. Okay. She undergoes a diagnostic prenatal ultrasound. The mass appears mostly solid with some cystic components. It's super renal on the right side, about two and a half centimeters in size. There's no high drops or any other anomalies identified. My differential at this time would include neuroblastoma, but also adrenal hemorrhage, extrapulmonary BPS, although more often identified on the left, renal-derived lesions such as a renal cyst, obstructed upper pole duplication, cystic Wilms tumor, mesoblastic nephroma, 
but if pregnancy is proceeding as normal, I would follow with serial abdominal ultrasounds at this time and plan for term routine delivery and further workup after birth. Dr. Gray, what do you think about fetal MRI in this circumstance? That's a great consideration, Amanda. Many fetal diagnostics and treatment centers, including ours, are moving towards fetal MRI for most congenital anomalies. The MRI can give objective information to help you better characterize a lesion. It would also help to look for other anomalies not seen on ultrasound. In this case, I don't really think it would change your management, but it's worth a consideration. All right, let's move ahead. She delivers the baby at term with no birth complications. How do you want to further work up this mass, Amanda? At this time, I would do a physical exam, get an abdominal ultrasound, evaluate urine catecholamines, specifically HVA and VMA, electrolytes, and neuro-specific endolase. Our ultrasound demonstrates a right-sided 2.7 centimeter solid suprarenal mass, and the catecholamines are elevated. At this time, based on the imaging and elevation in catecholamines, this is most likely a neuroblastoma. To assess for tumor invasion and metastases, I would order a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, and an MIBG scan. I would use the MIBG scan to localize dermally derived tumors, as this is done for all potential neuroblastomas and ganglional neuroblastomas. So our imaging demonstrates an L1 tumor, which means that the tumor hasn't grown into any vital structures and has no image-defined risk factors and is contained to one body compartment. Importantly, there are no metastatic lesions. So based on the imaging and elevation in catecholamines, this is most likely a neonatal neuroblastoma. Based on the age of the patient and the size of the tumor, she may be managed with observation. What does manage with observation mean? I would have her return to clinic for serial ultrasounds and catecholine measurements. What sorts of findings would allow you to continue observing the mass? If the mass stayed the same or decreased in size, then I would continue to observe. If it increased to greater than five centimeters, then I would plan for surgical resection. Or if the urine catecholamines increased greater than 50% above their baseline levels, I'd also consider resection. Okay, great. So the big takeaway from this case is it's an L1 neuroblastoma in an infant who's less than 12 months of age. This patient should have a high rate of spontaneous regression. Management is expectant observation without biopsy with serial ultrasound and urine catecholamine studies. The cutoff for observing this patient is a tumor size greater than 5 centimeters, a 50% increase in tumor volume, or increasing catecholamine levels. Fortunately, 5-year neuroblastoma-specific survival is 100%, and 5-year resection-free survival is 80%. Again, please refer to the linked article by Dr. Nuckturn and colleagues regarding the specific management of neonates with L1 tumors. All right, let's change gears and discuss a slightly older patient with a different disease pathology. Manisha, are you ready? Let's go. All right. You have a 16-month-old boy who presents with an abdominal mass discovered while bathing. What would you like to do? I'd like to start with a focus history and physical, focusing on the details of the mass and associated symptoms, including GI, respiratory, eye, and neurologic symptoms. Tell me a little bit more about the specific signs and symptoms you are trying to elicit. Sure. So lethargy and weight loss may be a result of anemia secondary to disseminated disease. Diarrhea or dehydration may be a result of the neuroblastoma that secretes vasoactive intestinal peptide, or VIP. Neurologic symptoms of lower extremity weakness or paraplegia 
may be a result of neuroblastoma extension into the spinal canal or pathologic fractures due to bony mets. Um, and last, maybe Horner syndrome, the triad of ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, which might be a result of a lesion involving the superior or middle sympathetic ganglia. All right, so he has been otherwise healthy other than a decrease in appetite and a mild weight loss. Then I proceed with the physical exam. I'd start with the vital signs, checking his blood pressure, listening to heart and lungs, checking for skin lesions, um, doing a nodal exam of the inguinal and scrotal regions, and any other nodal basins. He has a notable large, non-tender mass in the left upper abdomen. His blood pressure is normal. No skin lesions are visualized, and he does not have any palpable lymph nodes. Okay, so I'd move on to labs and imaging. I'd order a CBC and a CMP, and I'd get an abdominal ultrasound. So the CBC and CMP are within normal limits. The abdominal ultrasound demonstrates a solid abdominal mass in the left upper quadrant. It's difficult to tell if the mass is suprarenal or arises from the kidney. At this point, I'd order a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis to better characterize the mass and evaluate the lungs and liver for sign of metastases. So the CT abdomen pelvis demonstrates a left-sided suprarenal retroperitoneal mass surrounding the aorta and vena cava. The mass is solid, heterogeneous, and has areas of calcification. This is highly suspicious for neuroblastoma. I'd go ahead and complete the neuroblastoma, workup, which means I'd order some urine catecholamines specifically HBA and VMA. I'd also order LDH, NSE, and ferritin levels. And lastly, I'd order an MIBG scan to confirm the diagnosis and identify any potential metastatic sites. Your labs are all within normal limits. MIBG demonstrates disease of the lesion, but no metastatic disease. What's the patient's image-defined stage? So the children's oncology group COG has replaced the International Neuroblastoma Staging System, INSS, with the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group Staging System, INRGSS. This system classifies neuroblastoma into four groups using imaging at presentation and assesses for imaging-defined risk factors, IDRS. In this staging system, L1 is localized tumor not involving vital structures as defined by the list of IDRFs and confined to one body compartment. L2 tumors are local regional tumors with the presence of one or more IDRS. M is distant metastatic disease, and MS is metastatic disease in children younger than 18 months with metastases confined to the skin, liver, and or bone marrow. IDRFs depend on the location of the tumor, whether that be the neck, the cervicothoracic, thorax, thoracoabdominal, or abdominal or pelvis, as well as encasement of nerves, major vessels, or compression of the trachea. For full details of the IDRFs, refer to the linked article by Newman and colleagues entitled, Update on Neuroblastoma. For our 16-month-old, I classify him as staged as an L2 with localized tumor and IDRFs based on involvement of the aorta and the inferior vena cava. So what would be your next step with this patient? Our patient has unresectable L2 disease. The tumor is considered unresectable if, at diagnosis if there is significant involvement of major vascular structures or continuing 
contiguous organs, or if a nephrectomy would be required to remove the entire tumor. Patients with L2 tumors who are determined to be radiographically unresectable should undergo biopsy at diagnosis. At this point, you need to think about how you will go about doing that biopsy. You could do an open incisional biopsy through a mini laparotomy or ask interventional radiology to do multiple core biopsies. The key is to get enough tissue to run full histology and genetic analyses. Amanda, which would you choose? I would go with an open incisional biopsy, but maybe that's because I'm a surgical fellow and I'm addicted to operating. Manisha, what information <laughs> would you want to know from the biopsy? The pathologic results of the biopsy will help define risk grouping. Important information to know from the results include the histology, make an amplification status, DNA ploidy, 11Q aberrations, and the MKI, or mitotic karyorexis index. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Tell me more about these different histology markers and how it allows you to risk stratify. Well, this gets a little complicated. But the International Neuroblastoma Pathology Classification System is based on the Shimada Histopathologic Classification System. Basically, it distinguishes favorable and unfavorable characteristics. Favorable histology is what we'd expect, well-differentiated and stroma-rich with low MKI, defined as less than 100 to 200 based on age. Unfavorable DNA ploidy in children less than two years old is diploid. And the make an amplification defined as greater than 10 copies is also unfavorable. Loss of heterozygosity at 1p or 11q or gain of chromosome 17q tend to be poor prognosis. Elevated LDH greater than 1500 international units, ferritin greater than 150 nanograms, or an elevated NSE also tend to indicate a large tumor burden and rapid progression. But DNA ploidy and MIG-N amplification have the highest prognostic implications. So tell me about the risk stratification overall. In general, tumors can be divided into non-high-risk and high-risk tumors. Tumors in children less than 18 months old, L1 or MS tumors tend to be non-high-risk as long as there is no MIG-N amplification. Tumors in children that are greater than 18 months old or with make an amplification, tend to be intermediate or high-risk categories. So back to our patient. In the 16-month-old boy, biopsy of this lesion demonstrates loss of heterozygosity in 11Q and is MIC-N negative. What risk group does this put him in? Honestly, this is very complicated, so I'd refer to the risk group tree but I think this puts him in, in the intermediate risk category on the neuroblastoma survival tree. There's a nice image in the handbook for children with neuroblastoma, which was updated spring of 2018 that's associated with this podcast. So given that it's an L2 with IDRF positive imaging, uh, what's your next step? Because his tumor is unresectable, I then proceed with induction chemotherapy which includes cisplatin, cyclophosphamide, fincristine, doxorubicin, and the top side. Okay, Manisha, now you've given your chemotherapy. When would you proceed with surgery? Mm, typically, chemotherapy for intermediate risk patients is given in series of two cycles, followed by radiologic assessment. Um, after eight cycles, if resection cannot be performed, the patient's then observed. But 
if the disease turns out to be resectable, surgical resection of residual disease would occur after the fourth cycle of chemotherapy. The current COG surgical approach is to remove as much visible and palpable neuroblastoma tumor and regional lymph node tissue as possible, but preserving the organ structure and function. Exactly. In effect, you want to remove as much tumor as possible. The magic number is 90% of tumor bulk. As opposed to many other tumors, it's okay to remove neuroblastoma even piecemeal. As far as the last consideration, you don't want to sacrifice the function of any other organ system in your section. So don't remove a kidney and don't risk bowel function. And after surgery? Continue with additional chemotherapy and very close surveillance. And what additional therapy is recommended if the patient has high-risk neuroblastoma? This is the last confusing wrinkle. High-risk patients go on to receive myeloablative consolidative chemotherapy to try to kill every last cancer cell in the body. Because this is so toxic to the bone marrow, these patients will also require one or two stem cell transplants. After the stem cell transplant, the patient gets radiotherapy to the primary site. And finally, they receive maintenance therapy with immunotherapy and cis-retinoic acid for six months. I think I just want to point out here, uh, specifically with this, why we talk about not removing any other organ system. If we would happen to remove a kidney during the neuroblastoma resection, the patient would not be a candidate for stem cell therapy because it is so toxic. That's a great point, Amanda. And I think that's a great way to, to include in discussion overall with this management of the patients. So really, it's important when you do your operation to try to preserve all the form and function of the other organs, because all of the other therapy can be so toxic to the rest of the organ systems in the body. So let's do one last change in the scenario. Amanda, how would you approach a thoracic neuroblastoma in a paraspinous location? So um, these are usually low risk. It is important to avoid overly aggressive resection. Even if 50% is resected, usually it's a good outcome. You can approach these in a posterior lateral thoracotomy or thoracoscopy. It's important to discuss with the patients the risk of Horner syndrome with apical tumors and thoracic duct injuries with a more mediastinal location of the mass. Additionally, it's important in these cases to identify the phrenic, vagus, and recurrent nerves and protect them. And additionally, you should not chase the tumor into a vertebral foramina. And I think in this scenario as well, an MRI may be helpful as well as, well as involvement potentially of your neurosurgery colleagues. It's a great point, Amanda. I think you really want to avoid getting too aggressive with these thoracic uh, neuroblastoma or ganglioneuroma or ganglioneuroblastoma type tumors. You know, there's a whole spectrum of these tumors that you see in the chest going from the ganglioneuroma, which is a benign tumor, to the neuroblastoma, which is a malignant tumor. And then we have the ganglioneuroblastoma in the middle, which can some ha have some more dangerous features. Additionally, with these tumors, if you have something that is on the low risk or intermediate risk category, you can give chemotherapy and often just watch these tumors without even doing the surgical resection. And then finally, as you mentioned, once you get in there for surgery, you have to really be fastidious about your hemostasis when you're removing the tumor off of the vertebral foramina. Because if you get bleeding down in the vertebral foramina, you can cause an epidural hematoma that could cause the patient to have paralysis. All right, so now let's change gears once again. What if this patient was an infant with a extended abdomen and tumor to spot deposits in the liver and skin. 
So in this case, this would be suspicious for INR GSS stage MS disease. So similar to INSS stage 4S. This is usually defined as local stage 1 or 2 neuroblastoma with no restrictions about infiltration of midline with metastases to the liver, skin, and bone marrow. And specifically with the bone marrow, it's less than 10% involvement. And the MIBG scan must be negative in cortical bone and bone marrow. Previously, this had been limited to patients less than one years old. However, it's now been extended to children less than 18 months of age and also includes tumors that infiltrate the midline. They often may present with respiratory disease and have life-threatening symptoms despite high likelihood of spontaneous regression without therapy. And classic presentation is actually respiratory distress in infants from massive hepatomegaly. In this scenario, a decompressive laparotomy and silo placement to treat the abdominal compartment syndrome may be indicated. And they also have what is known as blueberry muffin syndrome due to single or multiple skin metastases. Children with MS disease require adequate biopsy of primary or metastatic tumor for histology and biological studies. And if the patient's less than three months, they're at risk of complications related to their massive hepatomegaly with or without coagulopathy. And all attempts possible should be made to biopsy extra abdominal sites of the disease if they exist. Often they are started on chemotherapy without biopsy and it is obtained when they are more stable. And primary resection of the tumor is usually not required as it usually regresses with observation. Great, Amanda. That was a a really great review of the MS disease. I think that's one of the more complex things to get your head around. Okay, Manisha, let's go back to you. How would you approach a cervical neuroblastoma? Cervical neuroblastomas will usually require initial neoadjuvant approach due to proximity of critical structures. At the time of surgery, we should consider nerve stimulation and monitoring and holding all muscle relaxants. For upper cervical lesions, I'd approach the tumor through a neck incision, while for lower cervical lesions, we may require a trapdoor incision if the tumor straddles the thoracic inlet. In the consent process, I'd make sure that the parents understand there's a risk of Horner syndrome in the resection of cervical lesions. Great, thanks. So Amanda, let's go back to you for one more patient. How would you manage a a suspected neuroblastoma patient who presents with signs of paralysis? So with this patient, it's important to get a neurosurgery consult and obtain an MRI to assess for spinal involvement of the tumor. They may be referred for emergent neoadjuvant chemotherapy or an urgent laminectomy to remove tumor from the epidural space by neurosurgery. And if they go for a laminectomy, the tumor removed from the spinal space can serve as your tumor biopsy. So it is not necessary to simultaneously resect the chest or abdominal portion of the tumor. And you can always come back for that later after the neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Great, thanks. I've seen that exact patient present. We had a infant this past year who presented with a spinal neuroblastoma. And the only reason her parents knew anything was going on was that she had this lesion that was growing in her chest, going into her spinal cord, and she became a paraplegic. She stopped moving her legs. So her parents brought her in and we had to go to emergent laminectomy to have a neurosurgery team go in to debulk the tumor in her spinal canal and allow her body to start recovering some function. And fortunately, she is recovering some neurologic function in her legs. All right, so uh, let's summarize some of the key takeaway points from our case discussion regarding the workup and treatment of neuroblastoma. 
It really comes down to accurate risk stratification. This determines the oncologic treatment and surgical intervention. Resection alone versus observation is a standard of care for very low risk and low risk neuroblastoma. Immediate, intermediate risk tumors such as the L2 tumor discussed in our main scenario should be treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by resection. However, high risk tumors also undergo surgical resection but have significantly decreased event-free and overall survival. Thus, they require more intensive adjuvant therapy. Complete gross resection is usually not necessary for neuroblastoma, but we have a goal of greater than 90% resection. For high-risk tumors with more aggressive tumor biology, gross total resection becomes even more important. In addition to risk stratification, location becomes important in surgical planning and preoperative discussions with families about inherent risks associated with resection. All right, so I don't really want to tell a joke about neuroblastoma today as we've reached our end, but we do like jokes. But here's how I like to think about neuroblastoma. Uh, I have three small children at home, so we read a lot of books. So I like to think about neuroblastoma as the works of Shel Silverstein. So think back to those times when you used to read those fun poems. When you find a sick patient and you feel like the crocodile's dentist who has you going to where the sidewalk ends, you need to just go consult the learning tree and you have all your answers. Okay, that's it. We hope you enjoyed this case discussion of neuroblastoma. And until next time, I'm Brian Gray from Riley Children's. <laughs> and I'm Amanda Jensen, Junior Fellow at Riley Children's. Good way to reference the giving tree. And I'm Anisha Batia, Global Surgery Fellow and General Surgery Resident at Indiana University. Remember to dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.